Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today, we have back on the podcast a very special guest. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Bob Grubbs. I uh, am also a professor. I teach pharmacology to dental students at the University of Washington and in uh, the Antioch PsyD program. I've been teaching that as well. I thought that your last episode was so fascinating. I wanted you to come back on the show and talk more about your knowledge of psychopharmacology or drugs that affect the mind. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's this vast field that is really interesting to me, biology and drugs, and it's just really interesting. And I feel like the general public, including clinicians, don't know that much about it. So I thought that we would share this information with you out there so that you could benefit from it. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was I had a client once who had, I think he, he had Parkinson's, mm -hmm. a very mild Parkinson's. He was probably in his 50s or something. He's married, happily married, had kids that were grown and started taking a medication for his Parkinson's. And he suddenly developed a sex addiction. I mean, the most common one is a combination of L-DOPA and Carbidopa which is used to, in essence, extend the useful life of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra uh, and in the striatum, where they terminate. So there's a section in the brain in the middle where dopamine is produced by certain neurons. All the dopaminergic neurons, uh, the cell bodies are, are really in the brain stem. And, and there are two little nuclei there. Uh, the substantia nigra is one. The ventral tegmental area is really where the other one is. And then they... They project. They project to various other parts of the brain. Right. I just find this to be really interesting because I, when I think of neurotransmitters, I just think of them as just like diffuse in the brain. Right. But you're saying that dopamine is only produced in this very small part of the brain by a very few number of neurons. Exactly. And the same is true for norepinephrine and for serotonin. Right. And again, most of the drugs that we talk about affect those systems. Right. And yet the number of neurons that we're actually producing that those neurotransmitters is very small compared to the number of neurons in the brain. Right. And so in the stem, but toward the top of the stem, in the middle of the skull, I guess, right? The subcortical areas, yeah. Uh, you have these cell bodies that are producing dopamine, and then they're projecting, uh, meaning that the axon, the, the, the arm of the neuron, is going up to the prefrontal cortex, it's going to various other places, right. and that it will kind of spit out this, this dopamine in the synapse to other neurons. But then that's it. The dopamine doesn't go other places, right? It just tells whatever neurons it's connected to to do something. And then those cells will use GABA and glutamate to regulate its brain function. Very good. I just find that to be really weird because when you think about dopamine or these or serotonin, for instance, mm -hmm. I just think of it just like a wash in your it's right. just everywhere. You know, different cells have. I guess in my mind, I used to think every neuron had every neurotransmitter available to it, mm -hmm. but there are certain neurons that will specialize in particular. Oh, it's very specific. Very specific. It's, it's really interesting. So this drug, L-dopa and Carbidopa. Carbidopa. Carbidopa is supposed to make it so that it breaks it down so it can pass the blood-brain barrier, right? It blocks the conversion of L-dopa in the periphery into dopamine because dopamine won't cross the blood-brain barrier, so it won't get into the brain. But L-dopa, which is the immediate precursor, will. 
So that's why we give the precursor instead of dopamine itself. And carbidopa simply inhibits that enzyme in the gut that it was, is there, as well as in the brain, that converts L-dopa to dopamine. Right. So it, it allows the amount of L-dopa given to be reduced substantially, which is good because it also then reduces the number of side effects, the extent of the side effects produced as well. So then dopamine passes the blood-brain barrier, goes into the brain. L-dopa. Oh, L-dopa gets converted into dopamine. Once it gets into the brain. Once it gets into the brain. Right. And then will reduce Parkinson symptoms. So what happens in Parkinson's disease is that this very specific pathway from the substantia nigra to this area of the brain called the basal ganglia, for some reason starts to die. And we don't know why, even to this day. But as a result of that, you get the symptomology associated with Parkinson's disease. So you get the difficulty in initiating movement, and the movements become more herky-jerky. They're less smooth. People's uh, ability to express emotions in their face is inhibited. Right. And eventually there can be cognitive issues and, and it gets worse. But it's all traceable back to this one pathway within the brain deteriorating. Right. And when they will do post-mortem studies on brains, they can see this deterioration specifically in this pathway right. between the, how do you say the word? <laughs> Dopaminergic. Dopaminergic pathways. Mm -hmm. And it's one particular dopamine pathway. Right. So, and is it the one that goes forward? <laughs> well, they, they all go forward and up, but it's the one that specifically goes from the substantia nigra to the, to the striatum or the basal ganglia. Basal ganglia. There are others that go to the, um, the mesocortical areas and uh, the frontal cortex. Those are the ones more involved in the symptomology associated with schizophrenia and psychoses. So you, you get the dopamine levels to rise in the brain, and this will reduce the Parkinson shape symptoms. And that also might produce a side effect of addiction, gambling addiction. There's an area in the brain, I believe it's the orbital frontal cortex, that damage to that area is associated with increase in addictive compulsive behavior. And the dopaminergic pathways do go there as well. So my guess is that because L-DOPA when you take it, it doesn't go just to the substantia nigra, it goes everywhere within the brain, that it's also going to upregulate that pathway or drive it a little harder. Uh -huh. And so it would make sense then that that would be a possible side effect in some individuals, right. that they are more likely to engage in that kind of behavior. Right. So you have your dopamine neuron bodies deep in the brain, and they are projecting out to various centers in the brain, mm -hmm. one having to do with body shaking regulation. Well, just motor coordination. Motor coordination. Right. Another one, for whatever reason, regulates your drive to be obsessed with something or, or motivation, mm -hmm. shall we say, the itch that needs to be itched. <laughs> and so when you increase dopamine in the brain, it helps to increase the dopamine in the area for motor regulation, therefore reducing the symptoms of Parkinson's, but it also regulates or raises the level of dopamine, so to speak, in the pathway involved in the itch that needs to be itched. And now people have more itches that need to be itched as a result. And don't forget the pleasure pathway. Huh. So the pathway from the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens in the brain yeah. is nicknamed the pleasure pathway, and it also runs on dopamine. 
Right. So if you're upregulating all these dopaminergic circuits that have specific roles within the nervous system, it does make sense that if you upregulate the activity in the area that controls impulsive behavior, which is what you're dealing with in gambling, and also increasing pleasure associated with it, that it's a I can see where that would potentially lead to that kind of an issue. Right. So it doesn't make them feel more pleasure innately, but it makes them more reactive to pleasure or 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 seeking certain pleasurable things or something. Right. So I had this client who never had any problems before, and he started taking this Parkinson's drug. And he said that he was told that he might develop a gambling addiction, but instead he developed this sex addiction. And his family was very upset about it (laughs) and did not think that it was due to this drug. Hmm. And so he came into therapy to get treatment for his sexual addiction. How it would manifest was he would drive around town all night long looking for prostitutes, but never actually approaching them. Hmm. He would obsessively go through the back pages of The Stranger, the local magazine with all the prostitutes in it, and read every ad, and he might call them, and never seen before behavior. Hmm. He was, you know, 50-something years old, never was with a prostitute prior, never had any interest in it, (laughs) just a regular guy, and takes this medication, and boom. And the thing that I didn't know, this was years ago, this was probably like 10 years ago. If I knew what I knew now, I would very quickly be able to frame this for him mm-hmm. and his wife mm-hmm. that it's it's not his fault, so to speak. It's a side effect of this drug that happens to some people sometimes. And here's the brain pathways that are involved. Now, we need to stop him from doing this. We need to help him. But it's not like it's generating from his free will, so to speak. Right. But at the time, I didn't know that. And it took me several sessions to kind of figure that out. And meanwhile, he's totally ashamed and his marriage is falling apart. She almost left him. I don't know. Maybe she even did. I don't know. That also raises the question of those sex addicts or those gambling addicts, do they have some brain disorder? Do they have a problem involving those pathways, those dopamine pathways that are basically making it impossible for them not to be a gambling addict or a sex addict? As you're talking about it, I find it very interesting because what immediately comes to mind is one of the newer drugs on the market, aripiprazole, which is better known as Abilify. You can't watch television at six o'clock without knowing about Abilify, which is another issue. It's rather unique among psychotropic drugs in that it has what we call in pharmacology partial agonist activity. And that makes it very different from all the other antipsychotic drugs, which are, are thought to be dopamine antagonists. So in essence, what a partial agonist does is it binds to the receptor that the neurotransmitter binds to, but it doesn't activate it fully. So it only activates it partially. So from the perspective of of this example that you've introduced here, instead of activating the pleasure pathway for whatever reason that, that this was stimulating fully, it would only activate it partly. So in essence, the person wouldn't get the full pleasurable response that they would to the neurotransmitter. So it's a way of sort of desensitizing a little bit the, the whole system. Uh, so I'm thinking in this particular instance, it would be interesting to see what the effect would be on that. Now, it, it would be counteractive to the effect of the, the dopamine on the Parkinson problem. You know, the, uh, you've got sort of cross purposes there. Right. But if you had now, we're not talking about Parkinson, but just somebody that had, you know, 
straight up sex addiction or, you know, gambling addiction, I'm wondering if it might have an effect there. I don't know. I don't know the literature on that, but it strikes me as an interesting proposition. Yeah. And I remember learning that the pleasure pathway that they used to call the pleasure or that they call the pleasure pathway Mm -hmm. might actually be more accurately called the itch that can't be itched pathway Mm -hmm. that gambling addiction, sex addiction, it's, it's, you could say it's involved in pleasure, you're trying to seek pleasure, but uh, but when you ask people what their experience is of the experience of addiction, they wouldn't say, "Oh, it's very pleasurable." <laughs> they say, "I have to itch it. I have to get it. I have to do this. It's something I have to do." And and I guess I get a pleasure or a relief when I get to do it, but I wouldn't call it pleasure, you know. So motivation: Are we motivated by pleasure, or are we motivated by an itch that needs to be itched, a compulsive? thing that drives us to do it because right. it must happen. And if we don't, it's just a bad thing, you know, or we have a single mind on one thing. Well, I think, uh, I think that's really an interesting way to, to discuss it because one of the, one of the things I think a lot of people don't understand about people who are addicted to opiates, for instance, heroin, you know, methadone, whatever, is that for many of them, the pleasure that they got when they initially started taking the drug is gone. You know, the longer they're on that kind of a medication, there's the the less pleasure is associated. And actually, you're you're trying to scratch that itch, which is the withdrawal, right. which is uh, or the craving, right. uh, which is really what they're what drives them to continue it. Right. I think the same thing is true of nicotine addiction as well. Right. It's that craving from withdrawal that you're actually addressing, not pleasure that you maybe got incidentally when you first got addicted to it. So I want to talk about the movie Side Effects. Mm-hmm. You've seen it, right? Yes, I have. With Jude Law? Yes. And Catherine Zeta-Jones? Yes. And? Rooney Mara. And Channing Tatum? Uh, yes. What did you think of it? You know, there were a lot of issues raised by it, uh, most of them ethical. In terms of the pharmacology aspect of it, it's mostly about drug research in a clinical setting and sort of the politics of that. They made up a drug, right? Yes. So they had a fictional drug called... I don't, some, I don't remember. Some kind of interesting name. But it was an antidepressant. Right. And so yeah. the story went that Jude Law is a psychiatrist and he is being wooed by the drug companies to start prescribing this drug in a study. Mm-hmm. Was it accurately portrayed in the movie? I've, I've read from actual physicians who've been in there that it was very accurate that yeah. uh, the drug industry likes to have people in the field who will go out and speak about their drug. So probably the best example is uh, Stephen Carlat, who is a psychiatrist. He has written about this. There was a great article that he published in the, or had published in the New York Times uh, Sunday Magazine section several years ago about his personal experience with becoming a spokesperson for a pharmaceutical company and how nice that is financially when you're doing it. But he became very disenchanted with it as it went on. He learned more about the drug that he was um, promoting and became troubled by it. And so eventually pulled out entirely. What drug was it? Do you know? Uh, it was uh, venlafaxine. And, and that is a? If, uh, it's an antidepressant. Its yeah. uh, trade name is Effexor. Yeah. It, it's a controversial drug. I mean... A common drug. Very commonly used. Maybe not as common as some of the other SSRIs, but, but fairly widely used for, for a long period of time. What he didn't know when he started promoting it, and many people report now, is difficulty coming off the drug. They report what they refer to uh, as brain zaps. Just, I, I, again, I don't know what that really means, 
but I interpret it to mean the sort of sensation of some sort of electrical activity unintended or, or noticeable within the brain. And they find it very disconcerting. There's also other horrible withdrawal effects that I, I've heard. Massive headaches and, and worsening mood and, and just complete shutdown of your life. So kind of a rebound of the symptoms that you were taking uh, the drug to avoid, right. which is fairly common for coming off many psychotropic drugs. So in the movie, he is approached by the drug company and they say, look, we'll give you 50 grand to run this study where you give the medication to one or more of your patients mm -hmm. and monitor their response and give us the data. And we will also cart you around to talk, since it's a new drug on the market, we'll cart you around to different conferences and you can tell other psychiatrists about how wonderful it is. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not telling you that you need to talk about how wonderful it is. We're only telling you to just talk about the drug. Just just do a, just, we want you to be as completely as impartial as you can. But the message is clear that if you want to be on board with us and you want to get all the perks and the free lunches and the vacations and the money and the opportunity to do this study, we need you to be on board with this. Mm -hmm. We don't want to, we don't want to pay money for someone who isn't going to be on board. And so financially, you, you get all these benefits and just all the perks. They show them at lunch and they're at a nice restaurant. And they're paying for it, that kind of thing. So you're saying that that, that really happens. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm not a physician. I, I've never experienced it myself. But again, reading Carlat's uh, account of this, this th that's how it, it used to work. Right. Now, there were some laws passed a few years ago that tried to put some curbs on what pharmaceutical companies could offer. And I think it's had some impact, but it hasn't uh, changed the field completely. I can't imagine them being very strong because this no. is capitalism and you, you have a for-profit. It was kind of self-policing, basically. Oh. It basically said, okay, well, we'll agree not to do this and not to do that. The drug but, companies or this? Yeah, the drug companies, drug companies. But what they did continue to do still gives them pretty good access to markets to try to develop physicians and, and uh, physicians' assistants to help them with that. So, right. There's a great article by Lee Vandercreek basically cautioning psychologists as, as we sort of approached the possibility of prescription privileges, trying to set up some ethical boundaries to guide psychologists if we you know, come to that point. Right. So there are some states in the United States that allow psychologists to prescribe. To prescribe. New Mexico and Louisiana. Okay. And normally, for those of you out there who don't know, you have medical doctors and psychiatrists and nurse practitioners, people in the medical field, mm -hmm. who can provide uh, medication, whereas those in psychology and counseling uh, have have never been able to do that because they don't have a medical degree. Right. But because of the idea that with some education and expertise, a psychologist might actually be more suited to prescribe medication because they spend more time, they have more training in interviewing someone and getting to know somebody. Again, with medical training around psychotropics, they might actually be just as good, if not better, at prescribing medication. And might prescribe less. Because uh, the way I like to think of it, uh, pharmacology or, or drugs are simply another tool that you would add to your toolbox. Right. And you have lots of other tools, CBT, DBT, you know, whatever, you know, talk, tool, therapies. talk therapies that you want to use. This would just simply give you another tool. Right. And the thinking is that in, in many situations, the talk therapy is as good or better than the drug. So if you have that, it's something you can use when it's appropriate, but you don't need it. 
Whereas a physician, uh, particularly a PCP who doesn't have talk therapy skills, it's the only tool they have. So actually, I think the thinking is, is that if psychologists had that ability, it might actually decrease the number of, of people on some of these meds. And empirically, they found that to be true, that psychologists prescribe less in general than other, than other people. Right. So if you're a general practitioner and someone says, I'm so depressed, help me out. The doctor's going to say, I have one tool for that. Here's some Prozac or some other kind of drug. Whereas you go to a psychologist and say, I'm depressed. The psychologist will cut. Not only will the psychologist do a full assessment and take much more time to understand your family and understand, you know, maybe the person just had someone die in their family and the psychologist says, well, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be depressed. How depressed are you? Is it da da da? Whereas again, a PCP doesn't have the time or the expertise or whatever to. Right. I find that a lot of PCPs, anecdotally, get kind of skittish around psychology when you start talking about anxiety and depression. I find that they almost seem afraid to talk about it. They, they they're not trained. You think they would be exposed to it, though? You know, desensitized to the conversation, but. I find that, for instance, I hear, you know, this is all anecdotal, but where some doctors will, when the idea that a particular psychosomatic issue uh, or a particular somatic complaint might be related to someone's psychology, like someone comes into the ER and they're complaining that their heart is racing and they, they, they're going to die, they're going to die. <laughs> and eventually the doctor in their mind says, well, there's nothing physically wrong that I can detect. And, the, and I'm guessing in the, in the mind of the doctor, they're thinking, this could be anxiety. But I find that a lot of doctors won't even say it. Because I don't know why. I, they, I think they have the same stigma stereotype about it and think, oh, if I say that, it'll be me being saying that they're crazy or insulting them somehow. When in fact, I'm sure every ER, ER doctor knows that, I don't know what percentage, but a large percentage of their patients are suffering from anxiety, hypo, mm -hmm. hypochondriasis, this sort of thing. Anyway, so what were we talking about? <laughs> um, well, so getting back to the movie... So then a woman, the, the lead character, she seeks him out to take this new medication and, spoiler alert, to find an excuse to kill her husband. Well, she has an excuse. It's a cover. It's a to, cover. Yeah. Right. So she, she takes this medication, which is known to have odd side effects like, you know, odd behaviors, maybe. It's a new drug. And then she kills her husband and then claims that the medication caused a blackout in memory and odd behavior, and she doesn't remember killing him. And she was planning this all along because she wanted to get rid of him because she wanted the insurance money or something and wanted to be with someone Well, it was else. more complicated than that. Uh, the Catherine Zeta-Jones character, who was also a psychiatrist, right. was coaching her. Right. And between them, they stood to get a lot of money. I don't remember the source of the money, but it all came down to money at right. the end. Is it plausible that someone, for instance, could take a new medication that's known to cause blackouts and kill someone and then use that as a defense? I don't think so. Drugs of the psychotropic nature will not cause you to do things generally that you wouldn't have done anyway. Might cause a, a memory problem. They can cause a memory problem and they might, I mean, if you had a tendency to do this anyway, uh, they're not going to cause you to, to have new behaviors, I guess is what I'm saying. So, Interesting. So if you had thoughts along those lines, then maybe it would disinhibit you enough that you could, you could follow out on it. Much the way antidepressants, you know, allow some individuals to commit suicide. They give you the energy or they allow you to act out on something you've already been thinking about. But to say that this drug would have caused somebody to 
all of the sudden develop these kinds of thoughts, I think is, is a little far-fetched. And I think that's a common misunderstanding about medication, that if you take it, it messes with your brain in such a way that it might actually create new behaviors that would never have happened before. I mean, we were talking earlier about sex addiction, and so that's that's one thing to think about. Mm-hmm. But the idea that a medi- you would take a medication and suddenly randomly kill your husband doesn't, you haven't seen cases like that. The drug that I think comes closest to that, curiously, is Ambien. Not that anybody's killed anybody on Ambien, at least not intentionally, but about 20% of people who take Ambien, which is uh, Zolpidem, they engage in behavior that they are totally unaware of. Mm. So they'll wake up in the morning, they'll come into the kitchen, and they'll find that sometime during the night they got up and fixed food. They may have gotten in the car and driven somewhere. And this is, I think, where I have seen people being arrested after they've gotten involved in traffic accidents and claiming to have absolutely no memory of it. Mm-hmm. And they were taking Ambien. Right. And uh, I had actually a, a student one point after I gave this lecture and talked about it say, I'll tell you, I was uh, recently on a train trip, got on the train here in Seattle and was heading across country. And I took two Ambien at some point. And the next thing I remember was waking up, not where I had gone to sleep, but some completely different part of the train. I had half a sandwich in my hand. I have no recollection of having bought or eaten it. Just a whole period of time went by that he had absolutely no recollection of, and yet he was clearly very active. Right. So is it that they're delusional or out of their mind, or is that they're normal but just not retaining the memory? Well, I think it's more complex than that. I mean, sleep is a really interesting phenomenon. And one of the things that is important about sleep and dreaming is that the brain disconnect what's going on in dreaming from the capacity to actually act out on it. And apparently there's some people independent of Ambien and who have issues with that. And so they, they will get up. I mean, just think of sleepwalkers, people who are getting up and walking, while they're sound asleep and have absolutely no idea what's going on. This is just kind of taking it to another degree. Is it the same? Is it the same thing? I suspect that it is at some level, that you don't have this capacity to disconnect the rest of the brain from engaging in physical activity. So you start dreaming, and and in your dream, you're thinking, I'm hungry, I'm going to go make some food. So in these individuals, they get up, they go down to the kitchen, they start making the food. Again, they're sound asleep, completely disconnected from the world around them, but in their interior world, they're still able to do these things. So they are basically delusional because they have essentially a hallucination about what the world is. I I know people who have these various somnambulisms, Mm -hmm. and some people will rise out of bed and not only will they be the, the common, I think, stereotypical sleepwalking is, you know, your hands are out in front of you and you're oh, like a zombie. But in my experience, what people do what is they will actually see things in the world that aren't there. Mm. So there's two different kinds where their eyes are open mm-hmm. and they see the world, but they actually will hallucinate things in their be impose a dream in the real world. And then there's other people who basically might have their eyes closed or not, but they're not perceiving visual stimulus but they can feel things. There's a famous sleepwalk with me guy. I think it's sleepwalk. With, I can't remember his name. Berbiglia. Anyway, he has this documentary and talk that he gives about sleepwalking and what happens. Like he would wake up in the middle of the night and he was having a dream about winning an award and he was 
climbing up to the, you know, like the Olympics, how they have these platforms and he's climbing up to the top of that. And then he wakes up as he's falling down off of his file cabinet and crashing down on the (laughs) TiVo machine and like destroying everything. And uh, then he had another one where he ran straight through a window on the second floor of a hotel in Walla Walla, Washington. Oh, goodness. And didn't wake up until he was running naked through the parking lot with all these cuts on him. And so he was sort of in reality and sort of not, right? And so with Ambien, you're saying that this might be happening with people that they are have basically as they get this idea in their head, it's like, oh, I, I, I have to go to 7-Eleven to talk to somebody. And they and normally this would be a dream mm-hmm. and they would just dream it and they wouldn't be moving Right. While they're in bed, because the brain will turn off the the motor system. So you don't move while you're having the impulse to move. But with the ambient, it's like that gets kind of messed with. And so you actually start acting out these dreams. You get in your car, you start driving. And I'm guessing that the input from the real world starts affecting your dream in some ways. Uh, right. So I know people that take ambient. A close friend of mine, she takes it and she would take it before she went to bed. And I, I'd see her after she would take it. And she would say, oh, it's just, a, it's just, it helps me sleep. And after she would take it, she would be so intoxicated. Her eyes would be at half mass. She wouldn't be thinking straight. She would do weird things. And and the next day, you know, or a week later, I'd say, remember when you took, like, do you know that this happened? She'd be like, no, I didn't know that happened to me. Because how would she know if her brain is turned off? Mm-hmm. So she takes the Ambien, she goes to bed, she wakes up the next day, everything's fine. She has no idea that she's she's walking around like she's sleepwalking for a while. You're right, and so sometimes people will. Uh, a lot of people eat for whatever reason when they take Ambien. For you know, they'll they'll wake hmm. up in the morning and the, their their fridge will just be ravaged. You know, <laughs> so the idea is if you take Ambien, you should take it and immediately go to bed because if you fall asleep, you'll dream and not walk around. But if you take the Ambien and start walking around. Like if you're on a train, maybe you don't sleep quite as well as you would in bed. Well, I also, I had a friend who took the Ambien, sat, watched the 11 o'clock news, and then got up to go to bed and fell flat on his face. Oh. So it does kick in very quickly and very hard. Yeah. So when they say take this immediately before bed, right. they're serious. Right. But again, for 80% of the population, it's probably just fine. It's just if you find yourself in that 20%, you want to go to a different drug. And there are... Fortunately, other good ones. The other two in that class, uh, Lunesta and Sonata, don't have the same issues. At least I've not seen it reported, and I don't understand why. Yeah. It may just simply be that they haven't been out as long, but uh, there may be enough difference in them structurally that you know they don't interact with the, the brain quite the same way. So in Side Effects, the movie, there was a scene where the Jude Law psychiatrist character gives the woman a quote-unquote truth serum. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that drug? Well, it turned out in the movie he didn't give her anything. Yeah, he gave her a a placebo. The traditional truth serum is a barbiturate, sodium pentothal. So it's a very rapid but very short-acting barbiturate. I can relate to this somewhat in that a number of years ago I needed to have some outpatient surgery on my foot. And so they, you know, put a line in my arm, and I wasn't going under general anesthesia, but they were giving me a benzodiazepine, uh, midazolam, I'm pretty sure. And I just remember 
that as the drug was going in the line, all of a sudden, I got this incredibly warm feeling and this sort of glow and just feeling like the nurse anesthetist who was putting this in was my best friend and I could tell her absolutely anything in the world, you know, and just life was grand. And the next thing I know, I was in the recovery room, you know, a couple hours later. So I'm assuming that sodium pentothal at the right dose does much the same thing. It just, you, you go from normal to incredibly intoxicated in just a matter of seconds and it, it doesn't last very long. Why does it do that? Why does it make you so lovey-dovey? The effect is on the GABA receptors. You're just sort of enhancing neuronal inhibition across the brain. So it's a little like alcohol. The first glass of wine, beer, you know, whatever you have, you experience this phenomenon of disinhibition. You just get a little more chummy. Everybody's a little more happy and, and, you know, you're more sociable, you're less inhibited. And I think this just takes it up a couple of notches above that. So someone asks you a question while you're in this state, the inhibition of, I probably shouldn't say this. Is gone. Is gone. And, and then you just say it and, it and it might be more truthful. Yes. You might say things that are more truthful. Right. Yeah, some people say a drunk man's words is a sober man's thoughts. Right. I'll say. I'm thinking of a Saturday Night Live episode where Will Farrell and John Goodman and somebody else are sitting at a bar talking about Bill Brasky. And and and, and you know, they're carrying on and then all of a sudden one of them will just blurt out this socially inappropriate revelation about himself and the rest of them kind of ignore it and then just go back to the conversation. But it's a little bit like that. Personally, I think that when it comes to these kinds of drugs, they, they affect many different parts of the brain and many, mm -hmm. many different functions. And that one of the functions might be that you might be more truthful, mm -hmm. but it actually might create thoughts that don't exist at all. I mean, certainly I, I know people who have been intoxicated. Some people think, oh, well, he was really drunk and he did this one thing. Therefore, he must really want to do these things because the inhibition was gone. I personally think that it shuts down various different functions in the brain, including things that might help you just even think properly. Mm -hmm. Is sodium pentothal, do you know much about its reliability? And If it was a really good drug in that regard, I think you'd find it being used today, and I don't think it is. Right. Okay. Well, another question I have for you has to do with methadone. Explain that whole process to, to people, because I think a lot of people think, I used to think, oh, someone's addicted to heroin, they take methadone, and that makes it so that they don't crave heroin, but isn't a drug. So really, the only difference between the two is the pharmacokinetics. Methadone is just as addictive and just as potent in many respects as heroin. But there are some important differences between it, and, and I'll explain those. One of the issues with heroin that makes it so problematic for the addict is that the effect only lasts about six hours. So if you're a heroin addict, you need four hits of heroin a day to keep the craving and, and the withdrawal away. That's a pretty harsh taskmaster, you know, got to keep coming up with those every four hours. And the other aspect is to get the effect, you have to inject it. And that presents a whole other series of problems. You have the potential for various types of infection, hepatitis, HIV, you know, anything associated with dirty needles and sharing and all of that. So there's, a, there's just the health issue associated. Uh, with methadone, you can take it orally and you can get the effect and it lasts for 24 hours. So you're avoiding now the issues, the health issues of the HIV hepatitis aspect because you're not now 
injecting it. And also you only need one dose per 24 hours and you can maintain a relatively good high if you want or, or lack of, of, of coming off of it for, uh, for that period of time. So if I took methadone, not being a heroin addict, mm -hmm. I would have the same effect as shooting heroin? You wouldn't get the intensity because of the mode of administration. The rush that people get from heroin is due to the fact that they are injecting it. So you're getting the dose to the brain very quickly. The onset is very rapid. Uh, I'm a, I've never done it, but I assume that the, you get this, the rush, the, the intense feeling of pleasure that comes with it. You're not going to get that by taking something orally because it has to be absorbed into the bloodstream. It gets distributed more slowly to the brain, but you will over, I don't know what period of time, get the pleasure, just not the intensity of what you get from, from putting it in a, a vein. And again, most people don't go that way out unless they're, they've made some decision that the lifestyle with heroin is just not working. And so they're trying to get away from that. Don't some people abuse methadone in the same way they would abuse heroin, meaning that they will take it recreationally? Probably. It's not an area that I'm, I'm that familiar with, to be perfectly honest, but it wouldn't surprise me because, again, it, it's a drug that affects the brain, in essence, the same way that heroin does. And I think that's a misperception that many people in the public have, is that when you go to methadone, you're kicking the habit. You're, right. you're getting off the opiate, and you're really not. Right. You're just simply moving from a very unsafe way of taking the drug to a much safer way right. in the sense of not exposing yourself to the potential infections. But you're still as addicted to it. I suppose it's similar to people who smoke cigarettes and then go on some sort of nicotine patch. Mm -hmm. They are smoking various different horrible things into their lungs. Right. And along with nicotine that's being distributed very quickly through the lungs, as opposed to putting a patch on that has the nicotine, they're still as addicted to mm -hmm. the nicotine, but it doesn't have all the horrible other things that happen from inhaling a bunch of smoke into your lungs. Right. So it still requires a weaning off regimen of a recovery from the drug. Well, I want to come back to the less problems with it because that's um, most people, again, assume that. But with methadone, you have a different problem, oh. which is that it's kinetics are very unpredictable one person to the next. Mm. And so one of the issues that's come to light with methadone use is a tendency for people to accidentally overdose on methadone without intending to. And it comes down to a, a problem with the kinetics. Methadone uh, tends to stick around in the body a lot longer than people realize. And so in some instances, people will take a second dose while they're still under the influence of the first one. And the problem is that with that, you can get a, a high enough amount of methadone that you'll go into respiratory depression that can be fatal without even rec you know, realizing Meaning it. you stop? You stop breathing, which is the most common cause of death from overdose of opiates. You, uh -huh. The respiratory depression is, is the main cause of fatality. Uh -huh. So again, these are, and these are people who are not trying to abuse the drug and don't even know that they're in trouble. They're simply doing what they thought was right because it can build up in their bloodstream and they don't recognize it. Uh, they might even develop tolerance over time to the high, but they're not developing tolerance to the respiratory depression. The tolerances don't match each other in development. So um, the Seattle Times did a big story on this a couple of years ago and um, really highlighted, I think, 
for the public in a very good way the potential risk that methadone produces. So there's another drug that is now being used instead of methadone, and I think the the use of it is on the increase, and I think it's a good thing. The drug is called buprenorphine. In, in, on the street, it's called bup, and it's available um, in a form called suboxone. Again, it's taken orally. It differs from heroin and from methadone, and then again, it's a partial agonist. So you don't get the intensity of the effect uh, that you get from taking even methadone by taking it orally. So again, it, it blocks the craving from withdrawal, but it also has a ceiling effect below that that you would get for heroin or methadone. So you don't get, quote, as high, unquote, as you would with that. So heroin and methadone are agonists, and this new one is a partial, partial agonist, agonist yes. meaning that the compound, when it gets into the nervous system, agonists will activate the uh, postsynaptic receptor. receptor at a certain level, a higher level. Partial agonists will activate it at a lower level. Right. If you took this bup and then took methadone, what would happen? Would it be a double effect? What it would do would cause you to have to take more methadone than you would normally to get the same effect. Because the partial agonist is in the way of the agonist. Right. So in pharmacology, we say it shifts the dose response curve to the right. So it would help in that way because yeah. you would need more to get high. So they get a little high, but not a lot high, and enough high so that they don't have the cravings. But again, if you did that and you were intent on getting high, you'd probably end up in respiratory depression that could be fatal. So it's not a recommended <laughs> uh, thing to do. So I want to ask you, and if you don't know about this, I'll cut it out, but about famous people, I think that might be interesting to the to the audience. So we have Whitney Houston, we have John Belushi, <laughs> we have Brian Epstein, the, the Beatles manager. Uh, do you know anything about the drugs that they were taking? Uh, Belushi was cocaine. I'm fairly certain of that. Uh, Brian Epstein, I don't know. Uh, Jimi Hendrix. Jim Morrison, um, Janis, Joplin. Janis Joplin, they all died from some combination of alcohol and other CNS depressant. So they were given a drug as a downer to help them relax? In many cases, again, life on the road is pretty harsh for most musicians. So wasn't that uncommon, I think, for some musicians to take amphetamines to get up for a show and then to take – at that time, there, weren't, there were a couple of uh, benzodiazepines available, Valium and uh, Librium. But more often than not, it was a barbiturate because they were more common at that point. So a downer would yeah. be a barbiturate. Right. Okay. And a benzo would actually be too. So again, you're you're sort of playing pharmacology Russian roulette. You know, you're combining drugs and not understanding. I think, and, and th I think this is where most people get in trouble is uh, is not understanding that when you add alcohol to any of these drugs, it really increases your risk of a respiratory depression that's fatal. Why is that? Because they're additive. They're two different drugs doing roughly the same thing, but you're doubling up. And so it'd be like, instead of taking one barbiturate pill, now you're taking two. Yeah. So we talked before about chloral hydrate and Mickey Finn and the same sort of thing. You're, you're, anytime you start adding together CNS depressants, and in that category, we've got opiates, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, uh, even to a certain extent, the um, antipsychotic drugs, not as much so, uh, anticonvulsant drugs, and then alcohol. It's it's a recipe for disaster. So and you could take, say, 
you could, you're recommended is take one benzodiazepine or one barbiturate a day, but instead you take five, then you could die from that in the same way you take one pill and also drink because they add upon each other. Basically, they relax this nervous system, which is normally supposed to help you fall asleep or relax mm-hmm. or something, but instead relaxes you to the point where you stop breathing because the nervous system regulates the autonomic breathing response or I right. don't know what they call it, the function of breathing. And, and, you know, another problem that you have to deal with too is vomiting. You know, if you get to the point where you vomit and you're passed out and it blocks your airway, you die. And I'm pretty sure that's what happened with Jimi Hendrix. Right. And then some drugs, particularly, you know, cocaine can induce seizures, cardiac uh, arrhythmias and produce death that way. So, you know, again, depending on the drug, there are potential problems. Um, I think the most tragic um, cocaine related death was, uh, I've forgotten his name. He was a University of Maryland uh, basketball player. Uh, was like the top draft pick his year. He was going to the, the Celtics were going to build, rebuild their team around him. And he'd never used drugs, never had any history of drug use. And I think to celebrate all of this good fortune, uh, somebody offered him some cocaine and he turned out to be one of these people extremely susceptible to it. And, you know, took one dose, maybe it was a particularly hot dose too, and had a cardiac collapse and died. Wow. So there are all sorts of horror stories with illegal use of drugs and and particularly just just uh, combining them and not really understanding what you're combining. How can therapists out there in podcast land become better therapists in your mind with regards to psychopharmacology? What should they do aside from listen to this podcast? <laughs> Well, I think just learning as much as you can. If you haven't had a psychopharmacology class, you should definitely have one, take one. There are lots of opportunities for learning in um, continuing education uh, settings. Is there a book you'd recommend? Like, what's a quick reference book that would be good? To get an overview, I think the, uh, the book by Preston, don't remember the title of it off the top of my head, but it's basically Clinical Psychopharmacology for Therapists, and it's in about the sixth edition, is a good overview and has some really good tables in it that I think are helpful. But again, it's an overview. There's not a lot of depth to it, but it, I think it would at least be a good starting point for someone who's completely you know, naive to the area. Wikipedia, is that good? I found Wikipedia to be a good source of just good information. Again, it's open source, so you always have to take it with a grain of salt, but it has references for most drugs that I've looked up there. You know, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. So one last thing, there are a lot of people out there that, well, maybe this is two things, that are against using drugs. A lot of people, I would say majority of Americans, are anti-psychopharmacology for one reason or another including physicians, including therapists. Well, I'm aware of it. I, I take the bus a lot in Seattle, and I started seeing signs on telephone poles that some individual had put up. It looked, was just on it like almost like a sh- piece of a sheet that said, psych drugs kill kids. Yeah, I think I've seen the same thing. Yeah, I've seen it multiple places. And I'm curious to know, 
you know, more about the individual and what their experience was for that. And, and to be honest, I think there are very good reasons to be skeptical about these drugs and their use because these are powerful drugs. They have effects on the mind and particularly in developing people like children where we know less about the effects of the drugs. I think one has to take a very long look at it before using them. Again, the, the unfortunate tendency in the medical profession now is to just go to the drugs first and think about other approaches second. And I think that's not wise. There are many instances where drugs are very helpful, psychotropic drugs in particular, but there are also a lot of instances, a lot of conditions where I don't think it's the good first choice. Yeah, I, I've experienced a lot of physicians or and clients who talk about physicians who just seem to, in, in my wording, throw drugs at, at people when they probably should slow down and be more careful given that drugs can cause permanent problems for people, yes. particularly, as you're saying, in children, and that, you know, so someone is having trouble in school and they're not doing their work very well and they're getting bad grades. And a certain group of people, teachers and administrators included, will say, we got to get them on Ritalin, we got to get them on a stimulant. And they don't think about other things that might be good for the child or that this medication might have permanent effects on them, you know, because like Ritalin will, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, stunt one's growth. Well, it's an anorexic, so it inhibits your appetite. Okay. And so right there, you know, you're, you're not going to eat as much. You're not going to want to eat as much, so you'll be thinner. And if you're in a, you know, rapid growth state, that's, it's going to have long-term effects, I think. So. Right, right. And maybe cause an addiction to it. Possibly, but generally, if that's the case, then they didn't need to be on it in the first place. I mean, I think that's the interesting aspect of stimulants is that, I mean, why would you give stimulant to a hyperactive kid? Yeah. You know, it just doesn't intuitively make sense, except that it works. Yeah. So in those instances where someone is clearly hyperactive, the drugs make sense. Well, it works for kids, in my opinion, that have a biological problem or condition that Ritalin can adjust for. There are plenty of hyperactive kids that don't have a brain disorder. Absolutely. And won't respond to Ritalin, right? They're hyperactive for other reasons, maybe parenting, stress. And so they shouldn't be on it and, and won't respond appropriately either. So, right. I mean, I think, you know, again, you have to be trained to look for the effect that you're, you know, expecting and see it. Right, which is another case for why psychologists should be the one prescribing this because to detect the difference between, shall we say, real ADHD and environmentally caused hyperactivity, uh, you need to investigate for a while and get to know someone in their life. Get to know the family. Yeah. yeah. And not just go over a checklist, a symptom checklist. Right. Uh, I've done assessments on kids and the parents and the school and everyone wants an ADHD diagnosis. And when I do a full assessment, I, I say, well, it might be ADHD. But when you look at his life, you know, his parents were jailed and ripped away from him literally from by police breaking into their house their parents were drug addicts they were shipped around to various foster homes and now he's 14 and he's he's a little distracted at school well are there other possible reasons other than a brain disorder Yes. And he drinks monster energy drinks all the time. Too. Right, you know, right. It's like, he doesn't get good sleep at night because there's all this chaos. 
shouldn't we look at these other areas rather than, and again, if there was a medication out there that had no detrimental effects, then go for it, right? But they all have detrimental effects. Right. So if you're willing to pay that price, yeah, but, you know, we should try other things that we know, like trying to stabilize someone's life. There are no detrimental effects to that. That doesn't stunt one's growth. It doesn't cause any kind of physical problems, you know? So let's try that first and see if that works particularly if it's a valid hypothesis as to the cause of the hyperactivity or the distractibility. So to get back to your question about those people who just absolutely don't want any psychotropic drugs, I mean, I, I understand that, but I also feel that it's important for those people to understand that there are certain situations where drugs can be hugely effective and that they need to educate themselves about you know, when and when it's appropriate, when it may even be life saving for some of those drugs to be used, as opposed to sort of a knee jerk response to, well, somebody's not acting the way I want them to. So let's put them on a drug. Right. I find that, you know, like the Scientologists and, and these kinds of people that are anti-psychiatry, I, I, I want to just say, go to a psych unit and really get to know some of these people that really benefit from psychotropics. I mean, you could debate whether or not they're better off or not, but you could at least say that there, or you would at least see that there are some people that without medication, their lives are extremely unmanageable. And we're not talking about a mother who is at home and she's feeling a little, she feels her life is meaningless. I feel like that's what they think of in terms of what a, all patients are that take mm -hmm. medication. They're just people that are being duped into spending money on something they don't need, or they're being told by society that they're not happy. And certainly, actually, these things are true. And certainly, mm -hmm. there are people who take medications that are a result of that societal pressure to be happy, to be always up, to be always you know coping well when your life is very difficult. But if you sit down with someone who's psychotic, if you sit down with someone who is extremely bipolar, if you sit down with someone who's extremely depressed and, and will kill themselves that whenever they get an opportunity, they're mm -hmm. going to do it. And you just see how much they're suffering. They, they're, they're not happy with their lives. These people are having a really tough time. You give them a, a, a medication and it takes away that suffering. There are side effects, but when you do the lesser of two evils, the medication route is, according to the patient, a better route to take. And I think that's important, too, is to, to talk to people who have been through this. And a, a, an article that I highly recommend people read is written by Andrew Solomon, who's written a, a number of things. Uh, this was published in The New Yorker, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. It's called An Anatomy of Melancholy. And he suffered from, suffers from depression and had an extreme depression. And he writes very eloquently about what it was like while he was extremely depressed. And then he talks about, very candidly, the effects of specific medications and how, you know, he had to go through several before he found one that worked. And, you know, the value of that to him and just being able to recover and lead a, a you know, a productive life. Right. The answer is somewhere in the middle, you know, you, but, but to just um, not entertain the possibility of using these, I think, is is too bad. It's right. just But again, they have to be used appropriately. And I think that's the key. And why I keep trying to teach this to people, because I think there is value there. But again, it's it's like a, a tool. Um, I keep coming back to that. You can use a tool appropriately and you can use it badly or inappropriately. And so what you need to do is learn how to use it so that it, it works and, and not abuse it. The way I see it is that, similar to you, I guess, is that for some people that can benefit from it, that is wonderful and should be given to them. And it's also true that we 
overprescribe and that some people are given medication that should never be taking it. Uh, so both are true. Uh, we should be anti-psychiatry and we should also be pro-psychiatry at the same time. Pro-better psychiatry. Maybe that's the way to put it. Is You know, it's... You know, there are, there are people who are better skilled than others out there. And what we just need to do is, is bring the skill level up across the board as much as we can. If, if I had a client that was coming to me and was being prescribed medication by their PCP, and it didn't seem that the PCP had a particular specialty in that, would you recommend that I recommend that that person talk to a psychiatrist or some other person instead of their PCP? I would have to know more about whether the medication was working appropriately or not. Uh, if it didn't seem to be, and I had reason to think that there might be some better way to go, I might suggest that the person get a second opinion and go somewhere else. One thing I tell people is don't just take everything your doctor says as gospel. Look it up yourself. Don't become your own doctor, but don't just swallow everything. Don't be afraid you. to ask questions. Yeah, and yeah. don't be afraid to get a second opinion. Right. Because, and the, the other thing I'll tell people is when you're talking to your prescriber, tell them that you're not dying for medication. Tell them, look, I want help, but I don't want you to necessarily just give me a pill to shut me up. Right. Like, feel free to tell me there's nothing I can do for you. I feel like if you give that message to a doctor, they're much more likely to say, you know what? When I weigh all the pros and cons, I can't do anything for you, and I'm sorry. But without that message and that freedom given to a prescriber, I feel like out of anxiety of, of being accused of, of doing nothing, they do something and maybe err on the side of doing more than what would be rational. Under yeah. Don't be afraid to refer, I think, is probably the, the take home from there. Well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Grubbs. This has been very interesting. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. I, I, I wish we could talk for hours and hours because there's just so many different things in this area. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the, what is it, the tyramine or the, the toxic level of tyramine? Oh, tyramine. Tyramine. We didn't even get to talk about that. <laughs> you know, there's like some foods that have tyramine in it and certain things that will mess. Ah, anyway. Another time. Another time. Thanks for joining us. And out there in podcast land, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.